Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. We'll look at the last five verses, verses 13 through 17. This has been a joyful time for me preaching through Matthew 1 through 4. It's a, it's a naturally made Christmas series, so I didn't do a, a, what I normally do, a, a Christmas series, because we're, we're in Christmas. We're right here in the, in the heart of some of the best Christmas passages. And we'll just begin our time this morning with a word of prayer, and then we'll read our text. Our Father, we come to you this morning thankful for the opportunity to open your word, the life-giving truths that we hear as we just simply read aloud the word of God. They soothe our souls, they inspire our minds, and they comfort our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be the case this morning. I pray for our little body here. I pray for all who are listening online, Lord, that... You would touch our hearts this morning with your word, that we would grow in Christ-likeness, that we would grow in, in our love for God, our ability to walk in the Spirit, and our worship of the Son. Lord, we thank you for this word. We pray that it would, it would do its work this morning. You have promised that it will, and so we look forward to the results of your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Just follow along with me, Matthew Chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When I was a little boy, I got to go to a place, I don't know if maybe some of you have been there. It's called the Grand Coulee Dam. It's at Lake Roosevelt and the Columbia River in Washington State. Grand Coulee Dam houses the largest hydroelectric plant in the United States. And, and even as, a, as an adult, it's really a, beyond my ability to grasp the magnitude of that project. But I was sort of in a nerd-like way interested in how it worked. And so I asked my dad more questions than he wanted to answer. And I still remember him shoving a bunch of pamphlets in my hand and saying, here, read these. But the spillway, the part of the dam that allows water not needed for electrical power to flow over the dam, is twice the height of Niagara Falls. And a million cubic feet of water flows over that every second. But what controls the amount of water that's used for electrical power or to continue on past the dam are what's called the floodgates. The Grand Coulee Dam is equipped with 11 massive floodgates, 135 feet long each, 28 feet high. When I visited as a child, each night the spillway waterfall and the water flowing out of the floodgates was, was lit up with colorful lights. Now, this was back in the day that it was basically a few flashlights with some colored tissue paper, and that was about all they had. Technologically, now, every night of the year, they have this incredible laser light show that goes on all this water. 
but really trying to describe the amount of water flowing from the spillway and from the floodgates in particular, it's almost pointless because it's more than we can grasp. We could use big numbers, but it's not something our minds can get a hold of. And that's precisely the picture I want to implant in our hearts this morning. Floodgates, that when they're opened, they allow an unimaginable deluge and abundance to come through them. And in fact, I'm thinking of two floodgates in particular, just two verses in our Old Testament, which faithfully have stayed closed, keeping back the floodgates of messianic fulfillment. But at the baptism of Jesus, those two floodgates opened. I'm just going to note these two floodgate verses for you that will sound very familiar compared to the account of Jesus' baptism that we just read. And I want you to file them away or or minimize them on the screen of your mind until we're ready to come back to them. Floodgate number one, this will sound familiar, Isaiah 42 verse 1. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased, I have put my spirit upon him. You heard the familiar elements. God the Father extolling the servant in whom he's well pleased, the servant upon whom he has placed his spirit. And floodgate number two, Psalm 2 verse 7. Psalm 2 verse 7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the prophetic voice of Messiah himself speaking, affirming that his father is recognizing a a momentous occasion of some sort. Not that Jesus became the son of God, but in this moment, God the father has announced officially, you are my son. And again, you hear the familiar elements, the announcing that this Jesus is the son of God. So keep those two floodgates Isaiah 42.1 and Psalm 2 verse 7. Keep those in the back of your mind because they become incredibly important as we dig deeply into this text. Now let me just start with some introductory thoughts to kind of set the scene here. First of all, we fast forwarded 25 or more years since the end of chapter 2 in which Jesus was taken by Joseph and Mary to Egypt until the, the threat from Herod had passed. And then they moved back to Joseph and Mary's hometown, Nazareth. John the Baptist has begun his ministry, and for the first 12 verses of chapter 3, we, we've seen the, the important points of his ministry, kind of a summary. And now the baptism of Jesus serves as a transition from the ministry of John the Baptist as the forerunner of the king, now to the ministry of the king himself. Jesus comes at the age of 30, according to Luke 3.23, and so that's kind of our, our setting. Now, second introductory thought. And we have to point this out. This isn't the primary purpose of this text, but Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus does something marvelous for the Jew reading this gospel. It does something marvelous for the entire early church reading this gospel. And remember, they possessed the gospel of Matthew as early as less than a decade after the ascension of Christ. So they had this very early in the history of the church. But what this text does that was such a marvelous gift to the Jew reading it, to the early church reading it, is this gives us the most overt, the most obvious, the most upfront presentation of the doctrine of the Trinity so far in the New Testament. 
And in fact, by now in Matthew, really this story just serves as a capper to all the hints that have been there. God the Son, He's been presented from the very first verse of the book. In chapter 1, verse 23, He is said to be called Emmanuel, God with us. Chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Hosea 11.1 1, when God said, out of Egypt I have called my, what? Son. God the Spirit is brought into the story immediately after the genealogy of Matthew 1. Chapter 1, verse 18, Mary will be found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then God the Father is brought into the story at the same time. It's an angel sent from God the Father who speaks to Mary in chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 22, this is taking place to fulfill what was spoken by God the Father in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Matthew 2, verse 6, God the Father is quoted from Micah 5, 2 when he declared that the king would come from Bethlehem. But now the glorious triunity of God at the baptism of Jesus, the voice of God the Father speaks, God the Spirit descends, and God the Father announces, this is my beloved Son. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is affirmed in big ways. It can be found in shadowed form in the Old Testament to be certain, but the New Testament begins with Matthew just trumpeting that God is God the Father, and God is God the Son, and God is God the Spirit. And it's now obvious. And in fact, at the very end of Matthew's Gospel... The Trinity is now part and parcel of the very fabric of the growth of the soon coming church of Jesus Christ. That as God brings believers into the church, they are to be baptized in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. And so the the church has this richer and fuller sense of of the Trinity than the Old Testament Israel could ever have imagined Matthew has revealed to the church that our God is one God and our God is three persons. This is the greatest theological glory of all time. And in Matthew here, particularly in this text, it is just shouted forth. It's another introductory thought to just get us closer to the text. As we get closer to opening the floodgates of Isaiah 42.1 and Psalm 2.7, we have to address the purpose of the baptism of Jesus. This has been a point of discussion, yea, even argument, maybe even some fights uh, over centuries and centuries. Some hold that the purpose is to be a precursor of Christian baptism, that the baptism that each believer undergoes is in symbolic acknowledgement of being in Christ, of being buried with Christ and raised with Christ, that somehow this is a precursor to that. Well, the problem with that is that Jesus is the one who instituted for the church age Christian baptism, and that symbolism isn't found anywhere in the Gospels in the account of the baptism of Jesus. It's just not there. Others would say that the baptism of Jesus prefigures the death of Christ, and proponents of that view would appeal to Isaiah 53, which predicts the death of Messiah. But this isn't stated. It's not hinted at anywhere in the text, and it's just a statement of opinion. And still others say that Jesus was coming out of obedience to the law of Moses. The problem is there isn't a law you can point to that he was obeying. There isn't a connection between John's baptism and the law of Moses. We said we've said multiple times John's baptism was a completely unique event. 
a transitionary event. There are numerous other options. Some are very good. Some are accurate. But in my estimation, I think the mistake that most often gets made is mixing up the purpose of the baptism of Jesus with the results, with the opening of the floodgates. There's really no argument about the purpose of the baptism of Jesus because Jesus himself already said what it is. In verse 15, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's the reason. To fulfill all righteousness. What is he saying? Well, this is a general statement of Jesus submitting himself to his Father's will. So to fulfill all righteousness means simply it was his Father's will that he submit himself in the very same way that all who were being baptized by John did with one exceptional difference. All the others baptized by John were confessing sin. Jesus has no sin to confess, therefore he did not do that. Now this statement, to fulfill all righteousness, this is an absolutely loaded statement, particularly in the context of the Gospel of Matthew. Because the Gospel of Matthew is, is exploding with themes of fulfillment and themes of righteousness. We've already seen in Matthew 1 and 2, Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. We'll see this all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. We see his family lineage, fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment everywhere. And the theme of righteousness will, will spring up all throughout Matthew. We think about Jesus himself. He'll open chapter 5 in his introduction to his sermon. Right near the beginning, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. And so to fulfill all righteousness is, is really an explosive theme all throughout Matthew. So the purpose of the baptism of Jesus is to fulfill all righteousness. But this submission to his father's will as showing himself to be the Messiah at the baptism, this is the event that opens the floodgates of results, of fulfillments, of fulfilling biblical patterns, fulfilling biblical predictions about Messiah's coming. I've tried to boil down these results, these fulfillments, to just a few categories. And so what we're going to do this morning, is I'm going to give you a single theological statement of these results, and we'll walk through them one by one. I'm going to give you the whole thing up front. It will be in four parts, but I'll give it all to you right now. Here's our statement. Here are the fulfillments, and they're really more just categories because there's so many of them. We'll just go through this slowly. Jesus identifies with Israel's remnant. That's the first part. Jesus identifies with Israel's remnant, if you're making this a sentence, comma, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Empowered by the Holy Spirit, if you're making it a sentence, another comma. Authenticated by the Father. Authenticated by the Father. And one more comma. And giving certainty of His coming earthly kingdom. And giving certainty of His coming earthly kingdom. I'll read it one more time and then we'll walk through the piece of the time. Jesus identifies with Israel's remnant. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Authenticated by the Father. And giving certainty of his coming earthly kingdom. All right, now let's take this apart. First part of our theological statement, Jesus identifies with Israel's remnant. Jesus identifies with Israel's remnant. Verse 13, 
Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Jesus has arrived from Galilee to the north. This connects the story with the end of chapter 2, where Jesus was raised in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. And at the appointed time, Jesus came south to the part of the Jordan River in which John was baptizing. But then we have a, a minor protest. Verse 14, But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John's assessment of his own position compared to Jesus is accurate. It's very accurate. We immediately think of John the Baptist's statement comparing himself to Jesus in John 3, verse 30. He said, he must increase, but I must what? Decrease. John was very accurate in his assessment. He rightly assigned all authority and all power to Jesus in John 3, 31. He who comes from heaven is above all. He said, he who comes from heaven is before me. He existed before I did. Verse 15, but Jesus answered and said to him, permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us, meaning you and me, John, for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. John has been baptizing repentant Jews. This is not Christian baptism. This is a baptism around the shocking message of John that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven from God is right around the corner and that to enter the kingdom, you must possess an internal reality of faith. Faith in coming Messiah. Faith in the coming King. You can't just be somebody who attempts to keep the law. You can't just be somebody who is external in your religious show. You must have an internal reality. There must be something real. There must be repentance. There must be contrition. This is a shocking message. And so the the Jews were entering the waters of baptism by the thousands. They were humbling themselves. They were humiliating themselves. They were confessing their sins publicly as they were baptized. In Matthew 15, verse 24, Jesus stated that his primary mission was that he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He had come to save a remnant, a portion. Now, all through the Old Testament, God has always kept a remnant of Israel physically alive. But now, the Savior has come to spiritually save a remnant. Those who would form the backbone of the coming kingdom. Those who would be the first citizens of the coming kingdom. And so by entering the same waters of baptism at the Jordan River, by being baptized by the same man who had baptized thousands of Jews, Jesus was meeting them where they are. Jesus was meeting them at their point of humiliation. He was meeting them at their point of degradation from their own sin. He was coming to them because they could not go to him unless he met them at their point of spiritual need. And in fact, in a very real way, Jesus was anticipating his ministry to the lowly repentant of Israel. Now remember, this is in stark contrast to the high and mighty Pharisees and Sadducees, right? We just saw them last time. But even in Matthew's gospel, we see that those that Jesus would qualify for entrance into the kingdom, they're not the high and mighty, they're not the lofty, they're not the super spiritual in terms of outward shows of religion. In Matthew eleven nineteen, even Jesus' enemies called him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
Matthew 12, verse 20, indicates that Jesus is the fulfillment of the coming of a Savior, described in Isaiah 42, verse 3, a battered reed he will not break off, a smoldering wick he will not put out. This is a description of a, of a tender shepherd who holds his sheep lightly and carefully and with tenderness. He knows his people are in desperate need. We're reminded of Jesus on the banks of the, the Sea of Galilee about to feed 5,000. And, and the reason he stayed, even though he was in a, at the point of physical and spiritual exhaustion, he saw them and he had compassion for them. And he, and he said they're like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 21, Jesus would send for the colt of a donkey upon which to officially present himself to Israel as their king. And this was said to be in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 9, to call out to Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. That's just about the least grand way to make any entrance. In fact, we could peek ahead to Paul's writings and recall Paul's theological description of what Jesus would ultimately do at the cross and fully identifying with sinners. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, so familiar to us, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, when Jesus entered the waters of John's baptism, Jesus bound Himself up with those who would follow Him. He was bound up with them and now they're bound up with him. I don't know about you, but if you ponder that thought for just a moment, I, I find it amazing. I find it astounding. The glorious Son of God comes to earth not just to stand where you stand in your sin and in your spiritual need to meet you, not just to stand where you are, but to stand where you are instead of you, to stand in your place, and to be identified with you as a sinner so that you could be identified with him as perfectly righteous. That's the core of the gospel. That is the, the center of the gospel. That Jesus stood as if he were a sinner so that you could be considered by God as if you were righteous. That's what he does entering the waters of baptism with John. So first, Jesus identifies with Israel's remnant. We could add to our statement, Jesus identifies with Israel's remnant, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 16. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. Jesus came immediately out of the water. This is a word that means in dramatic fashion. This was a David Papillon style baptism. This was dramatic. He comes bursting out of the water. Because as he did so, something marvelous happened. In full view of Jesus and of John the Baptist, according to his own witness in John chapter 1, a view, a passageway, a, a tear, if you like, in the heavens occurred, whatever you want to call it, but something was opened all the way to heaven, not just some trick of sunlight and clouds that kind of looked nice, but this is a view all the way to the very throne room of heaven itself. 
You might say that's unusual. Actually, in Scripture, it's not all that unusual. It's a normal feature of a tremendously great revelation. Ezekiel 1, verse 1, records that Ezekiel saw that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. In Genesis 28, verse 12, Jacob sees in a dream the angels of God ascending and descending a stairway to heaven. As he was dying, as the first Christian martyr, Acts 7, 55 and 56, records Stephen gazing intently into heaven and seeing the heavens open as he beheld the glory of God. Revelation 4, verse 1, records the apostle John receiving a vision and he said, And behold, a door standing open in, in heaven. And I love this. Isaiah 64, verse 1, is the cry of Isaiah for God to come to earth. And he says, oh, that you would rend or tear the heavens and come down. And so now Jesus and John, both witnesses to the opening of a doorway or or a tear or a tunnel, whatever you want to call it, to the heavens, with a view of the very throne room of God, Now, verse 16 makes this very personal for Jesus. John saw it also, but now it's a personal event. He, Jesus, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And for two millennia, Christians have represented the Holy Spirit with the symbol of a dove. Now, I want to be very clear here. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. It does not say he saw the the Spirit of God descending as or in the form of a dove. The closest we can get is a dove-like descent upon Jesus. Something manifest visibly. And I'm going to come back to this in a little bit. Now, just to be clear, this is not to say that Jesus didn't possess the Holy Spirit prior to this moment. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit after all. But this was the divine mark of God's good favor, God's good pleasure to appoint Jesus to his messianic work that lay before him. This marked the beginning of his ministry. Now, remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And as fully man, he would rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit for his ministry, for this demonstration of power, for strength and empowerment, for the next three and a half years of preaching and healing and training his disciples. And of course, if you read through Isaiah a couple of times, this may bring to mind the prophecy of Messiah coming from Jesse, the father of David, from Isaiah 11, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And from here on out, from now on, the ministry of Jesus is marked by being led by, empowered by, inspired by the spirit of God utterly perfectly and always successfully. Can you imagine what it would be like to walk in the spirit perfectly all the time? In fact, the very next chapter in Matthew begins, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. The New Testament writer Luke, in both his gospel and in the book of Acts, he emphasizes the very close relationship between the ministry of Jesus and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. 
Luke 4 verse 1 describes the same event after the baptism of Jesus. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. So Jesus went where the Spirit led. Later in Luke 4.18, Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 verse 1 when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel. So He preached by the Spirit. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus spent time instructing the apostles and right at the end, Acts 1 verse 2 records that He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, so he exerted leadership and training by the Spirit. He goes where the Spirit leads, he preaches by the Spirit, he trains and teaches by the Spirit. Peter preached in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, here's a thrilling thought. When you were saved, when you came to faith in Christ, doesn't it thrill you to know that the same Holy Spirit who came upon Jesus indwelt you? I'm not even sure we can even really comprehend that. We say it out loud. We read it from Scripture. But maybe when you're showing love, when you're showing joy, when you're showing peace, when you're showing patience, when you're showing kindness, when you're showing faithfulness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, that's the Spirit's work in you. When you have moments of great faith and trust in the Lord, that's the Spirit's work in you. When you have moments of great perseverance and, and steadfastness, that's the Spirit's work in you. When you have moments of great service and perseverance to serve the Lord in the church, that's the Spirit's working in you. And the Spirit of God, according to Ephesians 1.13, serves you as a guarantee, as a seal that the heavenly inheritance of eternal life is yours. Here's the logic. The Spirit will never leave you. The Spirit belongs in heaven. Therefore, you will be in heaven. You're going to be in heaven if you trusted Christ to whom the Spirit points as the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus identifies with Israel's remnant, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The third part of our theological statement, authenticated by the Father. Jesus identifies with Israel's remnant, empowered by the Holy Spirit, authenticated by the Father. Verse 17. And behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, not only do the heavens open, but the voice of God the Father calls out from the heavens. This confirms the importance of the descent of the Spirit of God upon Jesus and God the Father is verbally in the hearing of John the Baptist authenticating the identity of Jesus as the very Son of God Himself. This is the public Official authentication, by the way, of the deity of Jesus Christ also. Even the wicked leaders of Israel knew the implications of the sonship of Jesus. John 5.18 says that the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill Jesus because he, quote, was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
And it's at this occasion, the baptism of Jesus, that God the Father displays his endless delight, his endless love, his endless pleasure in his Son. This is a divine moment of love and joy between God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And we get this little small glimpse of the boundless and infinite, indescribable joy and happiness which exists in this eternal triune relationship. That God is utterly content. God is utterly ecstatic in this continual bond of love. But let me remind you of this. So many times the New Testament calls the believer one who is in Christ. We are bonded to Christ. We are bound up with Christ. We're given the imputed righteousness of Christ. And because of this, you as a Christian, you can know with assurance that God the Father's attitude, God the Father's disposition toward you is the same as it is toward Christ. That He says of you, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And in you I am well pleased. I don't know about you, but that's a truth worth pondering. That's a truth worth chewing on and marveling at. Jesus identifies with Israel's remnant, empowered by the Holy Spirit, authenticated by the Father. The fourth part of our statement, and giving certainty of His coming earthly kingdom. And giving certainty of His coming earthly kingdom. Now how does the baptism of Jesus give certainty that He will be ruling on this earth physically as the king in a coming kingdom. Now remember, we have to always continue to keep the context in mind. The context of the ministry of John the Baptist, what is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's right here. And remember, we said that as far as John the Baptist is concerned with the limited knowledge he had, Jesus might be coming to bring in the kingdom any day. He doesn't have a conception of a coming church age, of a coming long age of waiting for the return of Christ. As far as John is concerned, this is it. And so that's why his message is so urgent, so shocking, so immediate. Now let me tell you what's happening here. I think I can use an illustration that will help us understand this, something from a more uh, modern perspective. Sometimes movies or TV shows will use a storytelling technique in which a a terrible disaster has come upon the main characters and you think everything is just ending badly. And what do we do now? We pause and we look and see how much time is left on the episode and that tells us whether it's really going to end badly or not, right? But here's the technique that gets used sometimes. With the magic of cinematic creation, suddenly all the things leading up to the catastrophe are, are rewound and replayed. Only this time with a victorious conclusion because something was changed, something was altered, something was different. This is essentially what we find Jesus in the middle of doing. He's replaying the history of Israel because Israel has not been able to receive the kingdom of God on earth. Israel has rebelled. Israel has rejected God, her king. Israel has rejected God's law. She was exiled. And yes, a a tiny, small remnant returned with most Jews still scattered around the world. And now, once again, 
Israel is in an apostate condition, having been pulled into this trap of ultra-legalism by the Pharisees and the Sadducees with, with a shallow hope in the Messiah who isn't coming to save them from sin, just a Messiah they hope will save them from Rome. But now Jesus comes. And as he comes, as it were, he is playing the part of Israel itself. It's, the, the whole story has been rewound and he's replaying it. Isaiah 49, verse 1, is the voice of the Son of God Himself speaking prophetically before His own birth. Listen to me, O coastlands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, He made my name to be remembered. This is a clear indicator of the coming of the Son of God to be born on the earth from the womb of a woman. Two verses later, listen to the declaration by God the Father concerning the Son. Isaiah 49, verse 3, he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show forth my beautiful glory. So this time, in all the ways that Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. Because we find him right smack in the middle of redoing Israel's history in a new way and leading to a new kingdom. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, let's walk through some of the ways he's doing this. In Israel's prehistory, before she was a nation, Abraham was led by God to take his son Isaac, the one through whom the promised nation was to come, and he was to sacrifice him to God. And you remember how God commanded Abraham? See if it sounds familiar. Genesis 22, verse 2, Then he said, Take now your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac. Some versions say your beloved son. Isaac wasn't offered, but he was spared. And when Isaac had at first asked where they would get a sacrifice, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. Jesus, at the waters of baptism, is affirming his obedience to his father's plan as the beloved son of God to be the substitute sacrifice for sin. Israel sojourned in Egypt for what ended up being several hundred years Jesus sojourned in Egypt as a young boy. He's reliving Israel's history. Israel, as a people, was introduced to the need for atonement when they, they slaughtered the Passover lamb and the angel of death passed over them. Immediately after the baptism of Jesus, Jesus came walking by. John one twenty nine tells us that John the Baptist announced to everyone, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5.7 says that Jesus is our Passover Lamb. Israel had to pass through the waters of the Red Sea in total dependence upon God right before being led into the wilderness. Jesus is standing in the waters of baptism to fulfill all righteousness right before being led into the wilderness. Israel ended up in the wilderness for 40 years because she could not withstand the temptation of fear. She could not withstand the temptation to want to just return to the relative safety of Egypt to just take what she could get. Jesus is about to be led into the wilderness for 40 days. Only he will be successful where Israel failed. He will withstand the greatest temptation any man has ever undergone. And unlike Israel who failed in her faith, the faith of Jesus will stand strong and he will fight away the wiles of Satan with the word of God. 
But there's something else that takes us far back beyond the history of Israel. Something that takes us to the dawn of time, to the beginning of all things, to the very creation itself. The descent of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus like a dove. The description isn't that the Spirit descended like a lightning bolt. The description isn't that the Spirit descended like a firefly or anything else. It is the picture of a dove landing upon Jesus. When a bird lands, it spreads its wings and all its feathers out to act like a parachute to slow the aerodynamic process to what amounts to a controlled stall. In many cases, though, if you watch a bird carefully as they land, if they have a great speed or a great angle of descent, the very last thing they do is to flap and flutter their wings forward. And that's their final braking mechanism. And depending on the size of the bird, that flapping may be so fast that you can't see it with the naked eye. Now you might say, what on earth does that have to do with anything? This specific description of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus like a dove has a remarkable and an unmistakable and uncoincidental resemblance to the very first description of the Holy Spirit in all the Bible at the time of creation. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The word for hovering in Hebrew, it means fluttering, trembling, like this. Many theologians and creation scientists see this as the Holy Spirit creating the basis for all energy, waves, sound waves, light waves, energy travels in waves. In other words, this is the moment of the Holy Spirit empowering creation. For all of primeval history to pass, for all of patriarchal history to pass, for all of Israel's history to pass, And just now, at this moment of the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is described in the same terms as He was at creation. That's not a coincidence. That is momentous. Something new is happening. Something is being created. Something glorious is coming to pass. What is it? The pathway to the new kingdom of God on earth has just been opened. The new kingdom. And if you still aren't certain, remember our two floodgates that have let this flood of fulfillment of messianic patterns in? Turn with me to floodgate number one, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 1. This is a clear prophecy of the very moment of the baptism of Jesus. But what's it leading to? What's the bigger context? Isaiah 42, verse 1. Floodgate number one, we'll call it. Isaiah 42, verse one. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. Yes, this is fulfilled at the baptism, but now all of a sudden it kind of takes a global turn. The end of verse one, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now Jesus is bringing justice to all the nations. That doesn't sound like his first visit. We get some familiar ideas about his first ministry. Verse 3, 
We read this already. A crushed reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will bring forth justice and truth. Verse 6, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also take hold of you by the hand and guard you. I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who inhabit darkness from the prison. This is familiar to us. This sounds like the, the ministry of Jesus on earth. This ministry of mercy. But then, slowly and imperceptibly, the section goes a whole different direction, a global direction, a victorious direction. Verse 10, Sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea as well as its fullness, you coastlands and those who inhabit them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The villages where Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to Yahweh and declare His praise in the coastlands. And here's the twist. Here's the future. Yahweh will go forth like a warrior. He will awaken His zeal like a man of war. He will make a loud shout. Indeed, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Floodgate number two, Psalm 2, verse 7. Turn with me there if you would. Psalm 2, verse 7. And by now, you already know where this is going. As much as I like to try to surprise you, it gets harder over the years. Psalm 2, verse 7. Floodgate number two does the same thing. Psalm 2, verse 7, very familiar. We heard this at Jesus' baptism. I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, I haven't mentioned this yet, but the title of my message this morning is The Coronation of the King. And here's why. Psalm 2, verse 7 is what many feel is a coronation formula. God the Father declaring God the Son king over all the earth. Where do we get this? Verse 8. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see that the baptism of Jesus is giving certainty of Christ's coming earthly kingdom. The floodgates are open. And what's come through in a torrent of prophetic fulfillment? Jesus identifies with Israel's remnant, empowered by the Holy Spirit, authenticated by the Father, and giving certainty of His coming earthly kingdom. But there are still battles to be won. In fact, the first one is right around the corner. Very next verse in Matthew, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 4. Because Satan is going to immediately try to close those floodgates before too much damage is done. He's going to try to undo the effect of the baptism of Jesus. 
Matthew 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Satan will throw three temptations at Jesus. He'll tempt Jesus to use his power for his own good. He'll tempt Jesus to show publicly his avoidance of death. And he'll tempt Jesus to just skip the whole ministry and the whole cross thing and be second in command to Satan and rule the world as it is now in this sinful state. But for my purposes this morning, I want to emphasize that the temptation of Jesus was an attempt by Satan to close those floodgates, to turn off the spigot of prophetic fulfillment. First, remember we said Jesus identifies with Israel's remnant. All three of Satan's temptations include forgetting about the plight of the sinner, forgetting about the plight of unsaved Israel, and elevating Christ to glory by himself. Not bringing anybody with him. Second, empowered by the Holy Spirit. If Jesus theoretically had succumbed to any of the temptations of Satan, then that would have proven that the Holy Spirit was not powerful enough in Jesus the man to resist the lavish enticements of Satan. Third, authenticated by the Father as the Son of God twice. Satan challenges Jesus to prove that he's the Son of God, only to do it Satan's way, not God's way. Chapter 4, verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Verse 6, And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And fourth, giving certainty of his coming earthly kingdom. Verse 8, And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. But this would have been a kingdom with Jesus as a puppet king with Satan behind him and a kingdom in which sin reigns in the world forever and ever and ever. And listen carefully. Jesus, fully God, could not succumb to the temptation because God cannot sin. And Jesus, fully man, would not submit and succumb to temptation because of the perfect power of the Holy Spirit coursing through the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so those floodgates remain open, carrying human history toward the culminating point in which Christ returns to fulfill what was begun in prophecy and opened wide at the baptism of Jesus. And because of this, you can rest assured that because Christ was victorious over sin, so are you. Because Christ has beaten death, so have you. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, so shall you be. Because Christ is in heaven, so shall you be. Because Christ is returning to earth to reign for a thousand years after triumphing over his enemies, so shall you. And because Christ shall enter into the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem, so shall you. Because the floodgates have an end point. It's a place of glorious, calm, still waters. The new Jerusalem, which John describes as having a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. There's a beautiful, beautiful verse. Just a little part of a verse near the end of 1 Thessalonians 4. 
And it speaks of the time after the rapture and the resurrection event, but it is your future. And that little part of a verse, and I leave you with this, is so shall we always be with the Lord. The floodgates are open and we ride them all the way to glory. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the the glorious opening of those floodgates prophesied 700 years and 1,000 years before the baptism of Christ. Now the torrent, the white water of your redemptive plan gushes forth and cannot be stopped. And I praise you, Father, for choosing us from before the foundation of the world to be in the flow of those living waters. I praise you, Jesus, our Savior, for being the perfect man who went in obedience all the way to a horrific death to receive the wrath of God upon you instead of it being poured upon us. And I praise you, Holy Spirit, for calling us to God, for regenerating our hearts, enabling us to have faith in Christ, showing us our sin, and giving us the faith that we needed to trust Jesus. And we would pray this morning for one or two who don't know Christ, who know that they're outside the flood outside the the torrent of the redemptive plan of God, the living waters have not yet touched them. And yet this day we ask you, Holy Spirit, to bring them into the fold, to bring them into the kingdom, that they might one day stand before Christ, seeing that throne of God and of the Lamb, beholding the very rivers of the waters of life. We ask you to do this because our Savior would be glorified to have many more in his kingdom to worship and serve him. And we pray in his name. Amen.